Hey, welcome back to Three White Guys with a Podcast. I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> I meant the Better Questions Podcast. So let's just address the elephant in the room. We are aware that this is a podcast, like 90% of all podcasts, consisting of just three dudes in a basement. And if we're going to ask better questions, we need to have a more diverse panel of people asking those questions. And so today, we sat down with Carolyn Custis James. She is a well-known author and speaker and professor. You may know her from books such as The Gospel of Ruth or Finding God in the Margins. And we will link uh, to her books and some of her other stuff in the description below. And just a reminder for our podcast listeners, you can find us on video at YouTube at the Better Questions podcast page. And... So today we were able to sit down with Carolyn and discuss women in the church, and we wanted to frame a better conversation around women's roles in the church, and we were able to ask her her ideas of what some better questions are and what's best as a church to be respectful and give women a voice. And I don't know about you, Dan, but I thought it was a really great conversation. Man, it was, it was an awesome conversation uh, with Carolyn. And uh, in preparation for this podcast, I actually had looked up some of her work and uh, listened to some other podcasts she was on. And I got to tell you that that some of what she uh, has shared in those that I looked at and what she, she repeated some of that information for us, some of what she's about to share is just really powerful. It's really important. And I think that um, it's stuff that every man and woman needs to uh, expose themselves to. Uh, just for a fuller understanding of the gospel, of what Scripture is trying to do, and uh, what we can learn from the Scripture about God's true and original intention for males and females. Yeah, so we just ask, no matter where you land on women leading or speaking or preaching in the church, we just ask that uh, you just listen to Carolyn and be open to some better questions and better ways of framing the conversation. Because we can only benefit from listening and learning and hearing what other people have to say. And so we just hope that this conversation helps further conversations. And so, without further ado, here's our conversation with Carolyn Custis James. Carolyn, thanks so much for taking some time to be here with us. Would you mind just real quick kind of introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. <laughs> um, I'm a, a writer and uh, a fellow traveler in the journey to understand God's calling on our lives and his purposes for his children. I um, I think my work mainly comes out of questions I've been asking, so I love the name of your podcast. Um, you know, just even asking bigger questions, and um, so my so um, my my writing started out just in my own quest to understand what was God's calling for His daughters, and for me as a, a pastor's kid and somebody who grew up in the church. I had a very clear idea 
of what God's calling was for me as a woman. And um, I expected that after I graduated from college, I'd get married and be a wife and mother and find my glorious fulfillment in those roles. Instead, for me, I didn't get married. There wasn't anyone I wanted to marry. And it went on for 10 years. Uh, it was like the bottom had dropped out that I began to think I could miss what God had created me to be. <clears throat> and so that started my questions. And the questions for me began with, can I miss, can I miss what God created me to be? And then I started noticing other women. And the question became, can I lose it once I get it? And um, can somebody cheat me of it? Can I ruin it? And, you know, is God's purpose for me indestructible? Does it begin when I begin and last until my final breath? Or is it just for certain seasons of life? Um, and then the questions got even bigger than that because we're very um, focused on our own culture and our own world and the bible isn't an american book and the bible's message for women isn't an american message it's a global message so um i think for me especially after 9 11 there was a lifting of the curtain so that i began to think about what is God's message for women anywhere in the world at any point in history, no matter what they see when they look in the rearview mirror, no matter what circumstances they're facing or what their demographics look like, you know, is it universal? Is it for all of us? Is it for every day? Um, and is it something that um, is so cemented in us that nothing can take it away from us? So, yeah, I like asking better questions. And those are questions I, I wouldn't have asked if I, I, I don't think I would have asked if my life had followed the roadmap. Um, so it, it um, was an important struggle. Yeah. And, and I would love maybe if we could just start with a little bit of context. And I know that this question I'm about to ask is difficult because it's maybe really different across denominations and especially globally. But how, how would you kind of describe the current situation of women in the church? Um, I, I think it's, it's um, I'm seeing changes that I think are healthy. Um, and, it, and it doesn't seem to matter where people fall on the, in the debate. I'm seeing encouragements in both settings. Um, and I'm also seeing that we're very stuck. You know, it's, it's sort of like, um, it's the litmus test. As a woman, I face the litmus test. You know, which camp are you in? And, yep. and, and my work kind of makes people crazy because I don't take sides and say, this is the camp I'm in. Um, because I think we need to ask deeper questions. As a woman... When I listened to this discussion, and I grew up with it, and I grew up in a very, you know, conservative church where the leadership was all male, um, the official leadership was all male, and um, where, you know, that has a certain impact on a woman. 
where you see a line that's drawn and it's not ever drawn in the same place. I had a conversation with John Piper one time and I said, if I went to your church or Tim Keller's church or Paige Patterson's church, the line would be in a different place for me in all three of those churches and you're all in the same camp. So, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? So it means I have to be careful. I have to be careful about crossing a line. And, but when I look at Jesus and what Jesus, what his claim is on me, I don't hear that kind of caution mm -hmm. that I should just do so much, but not more. Um, you know, I hear Jesus' parable of the talents, and I imagine standing before him. Do I want to explain why I did too little or why I did too much? Mm. And, wow. and, you, and you grow up as a woman in this debate feeling like you need to be careful. You know, there, there, there are places where you can do too much. And I don't think we can ever do too much. So I think the questions are misguided. And one of the examples that I give is back in 2006, there was a crisis on Mount Hood in Oregon. I'm from Oregon. And the crisis was that there were three men, three climbers who were in trouble. There had been a sudden change in the weather. These were experienced climbers, but they were caught in this unexpectedly. And it was a, a week in the media where there wasn't much other news going on. So this was the dominant story for the whole week. One of those climbers was my husband's youngest brother. Mm. And we learned because he was able to contact his wife by his cell phone um, that he was in a snow cave, that there was something wrong with him and the other two had gone for help. So, you know, this week, and it turned out to be a triple tragedy when it was over. Wow. But the beginning of the week, it was just amazing. All of the rescue workers that headed for the mountain. And I was at home. My husband went to the mountain to um, advocate for the families. He was in all the news programs all that week. Um, and I have to say that when we looked at what was happening on the mountain, it did not matter to us if it was a man or a woman who right. found those climbers. All we wanted was for them to be brought back home safe. And, you know, and I feel like as Christians, we do not understand our mission. We're involved in a rescue mission. We're involved in a calling to become a different kind of people than what you see anywhere else. And um, we need everybody to be full on in what we're called to be and do. We need to all be learners. We need to all be studying. We need to all be trying to grow deeper. We need to be able to interact with one another you know, for men to say, you know, I'll only learn from men is foolish. 
I mean, with some of the deepest theology in the Bible comes from women. You know, you have Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave girl, you know, a, a young girl from Africa who enters the story and teaches us about the intimate side of God. Where would we be without that? You know, and Abraham needed to learn that, and Sarah needed to learn that, and I need to learn that, and you do too. Right. Uh, so to say, you know, if a woman knows something about God that I don't know, you know, uh, <laughs> I can't learn from her. And, you know, so for me, the questions are so much bigger. You know, you can say in 21st century America that a woman should live her life like X, Y, Z. That same thing won't translate if you go into the Sudan or you go into Syria or you go into India or, you know, different parts of the world. They're facing different situations. The gospel frees us to live for Jesus wherever he puts us. And there's a very strong message in the Bible that we are interdependent, that everybody is necessary, mm. that it may be somebody that we would totally rule out who is the most indispensable person in our story right now. So we have a whole different value system that we get from our culture. And Jesus gives us one that is radically opposed to that. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, it affects my stewardship. It affects my growth. It affects my call to leadership. That, and, I, and I think the Bible gives us a much bigger definition for leadership because if if you're god's image bearer you have responsibility for what's going on in god's world and you know it's not like well i'm a woman so you know i'm not sure that's my thing <laughs> yeah you know i don't think we're, yeah. we get off the hook and it's very dangerous i think it's 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 dangerous for us to shirk our responsibility it's dangerous for men not to ask more of us because you know when you when you read in genesis and god says it's not good for the man to be alone he's not narrowing that down it's just a blanket statement mm -hmm. you know and and he's not making light of men when he says this is what they need it's it's very strong what he's providing. And, you know, I think it makes men look for less in a woman. And I mean, it's just sort of, when you start to look at it like that, you get different questions. Uh, I really, I really appreciate the things that you've brought up about the Bible. And I'm just curious because it seems when we approach this conversation, most people point to, the Bible for whatever side they land on. And so I'm just kind of curious, as you read the Bible, what do you see that it has to say about women? Well, the first thing we have to say when we read the Bible is that we're not reading an American book. So if you look at the Bible, if you look at the, the words on the page, 
as an American and you never leave our shores, then you will miss what the Bible is telling us. Mm. You know, it's an ancient patriarchal culture, and we have confused that to say that the Bible is teaching patriarchy, although, you know, a kinder, gentler, you know, unpolygamous, <laughs> whatever version of it. But it's the backdrop to the Bible's message. So in the Bible, you know, it's, it's, it takes place within a patriarchal culture. I would say that is a fallen culture. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. So it's not going to reflect any of the cultural systems that we see. It's going to call us, excuse me, to be very different from that. And when you look at patriarchy, it's a, it's a system that is centered on the rule of men, father rule is what it means. But it's, um, and so women would, their value would be defined on the basis of the men in their stories. You know, who's, who's her father? Who's, who's her husband? And how many sons has she produced? You know, so a woman's gauged by the number of her sons. It's a world where a woman has no agency, legal rights, or voice. So when a woman sets foot on the pages of scripture, it's a radically countercultural event that should draw our attention. You know, we've just glossed over these stories. We've sanitized them. Um, you know, we've turned them into fairy tales. Um, but they are earth-shaking. Um, you know, the, the story of Jesus teaching Mary of Bethany in a room full of men was earth-shaking. It's, it's just not exciting in 21st century America. And so we talk about quiet time and not being too busy. But what you're seeing there is a radical breakthrough in the culture's way of looking at a female mind. And Jesus is saying what she has chosen is the most important thing. And I won't take it away from her. If you took that story to Afghanistan or to Pakistan, where little girls' education is ceased at the age of eight, where Malala got shot for advocating for education for girls, and you told them that story about Jesus, they would love him. So do you see the difference when you say that's the backdrop? Then these stories all have more potency. Like Hagar, she was nothing, you know? She was, she was a slave girl. She was, you know, oh, take her and make a baby with her. You know, she had no power at all. And then there's this potent moment in her story where she's running for her life and the angel of the Lord is in hot pursuit of her, calls her by name. She says, he sees me. Huge. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I love what, I love what you're saying um, because there seems to be a disconnect 
in my view, between what we're being taught and what so many of us experience, and not only experience in real life, but experience in the different passages of the Bible people cite. And I would just love to hear your opinion as to why so often we can experience a woman in leadership, either inside or outside the church, and get value from that and see the skills and the expertise displayed by the woman, and yet say, well, once they step inside the church, those skills and experiences don't matter. There seems to be a disconnect where I remember when I was in preaching classes, many of the women preaching were really good and, and sometimes, a lot of the times, better than some of my myself and my guy friends, and yet they were never asked to preach in churches nearby. And so why do you think there's a disconnect between the experience of seeing skill and value and expertise and the experience of benefiting from women in the world, but yet saying, well, that doesn't matter once you get inside the church. I would love to hear why you think that is. Well, I think it's because we've, we've taken patriarchy as the model, as the system. And it's made men nervous about women, you know, and that it's demeaning to men to learn from a woman. No, it, you know, when you think about them, the metaphor of the body. You know, if if we let that inform how we interact with one another, we would be totally different. You know, to, to step inside the church, there should be inside the church the most vibrant flourishing of human beings, the most um, intense valuing of others. And, and you know what? It's not just women who get hurt in all of this. Men get hurt by patriarchy. Mm. No, it, it's a system of pyramids. So, you know, so there's very little room at the top. And every Sunday in our churches, men are marginalized. You know, if they don't have the same level of education, if they don't have the same bank account, if they don't have the same kind of a job, nobody looks at them and says, what did you just bring us when you walked in the door? You know, we don't think like that. And, you know, some of the most, for me, you know, I, I told you I grew up in a church where I never, I, I, I have three brothers, and I thought if I had been the fourth brother, I would have gone straight to seminary after college because I couldn't get enough of, digging into the Bible and studying. And, um, but I couldn't because I was a girl. And, you know, and, and I never thought about being a pastor as a woman, never did. And so when people would talk to me about Deborah and Priscilla and Junia and throw some of those, you know, I, I just felt like, well, that I'm not thinking like that. And that's not a question I'm asking. Although, a lot of women are asking that question. But what changed the story for me was the book of Ruth. And what you have in the book of Ruth, and this is the, you know, it's the typical Cinderella story. That's how we talk about the book of Ruth. But the book of Ruth, if you give it its backdrop of the patriarchal world, when Naomi becomes a refugee, a famine refugee, 
and her husband and both her sons die. Naomi plummets to the bottom. And scholars are saying the book of Ruth is a Job story. It's not a Cinderella story. It's a Job story. And Naomi is a female Job. And she's asking questions sooner or later we're all going to be asking. You know, does God really love me for my life to look like this? The person in the story who is leading the action is not just a zero. She's below zero. Ruth has gone through 10 years of marriage to a famine refugee in a culture where marriages are arranged to improve your family status. You know, she's a throwaway daughter. Doesn't matter who she marries. You know, she's, they're just offloading her. She marries a famine refugee. She goes through 10 years of marriage without a pregnancy. And then her husband dies. She becomes an immigrant in Bethlehem. They're, they're facing hunger. She goes on welfare. I mean, listen to her story. How she's dropping. <laughs> you know? Right. And what shook me up and made me rethink my whole life was when scholars said that Ruth is initiating the action in the book of Ruth. That when she approaches Boaz every single time, she's reinterpreting Mosaic law to him. He has been raised on the Mosaic law and she's a brand new convert. She's a scavenger in his field. She's not a prospect for a bride. No man in his right mind would marry a woman with that kind of track record when it comes to pregnancies. They want sons. But she lives on the hungry side of the law. And it reads differently from that vantage point. Right. So she doesn't want to pick up scraps. She wants to feed her mother-in-law. And the letter of the law says, let them glean. He lets them glean. That means, what are they going to take home? Whatever's left. But the spirit of the law says, feed them. And she takes home 29 pounds of winnowed barley. It's like the mother load. And in ancient Babylonian records, they say that a, that a, har a male harvester would have to work a half a month to a full month to take home that much. So it was massive but you what i heard them say was that ruth is initiating the action she's the leader in the story when i heard that the issue was over for me mm. if ruth why not me right you know so it's it's it we can draw pictures of these strong women who have leading roles, and that matters in the biblical text. The narratives are part of the inspired word of God, <clears throat> and that matters in how we look at women. But Ruth draws such a big circle that all of us are inside that circle. And, and I think the Bible defines leadership as image bearer, that 
you have responsibility for what happens in God's world, that you speak and act for him, that when you see something going on, you're, you're not a spectator. You have responsibility to do something. And, you know, you may never get the title, but you, you have responsibility. And, you know, here she is, little Miss Below Zero, and God has orchestrated a rescue operation into Moab, Jordan, to bring her out. And her actions are addressing family problems, but God is using her actions to advance his purposes for the world. <laughs> you know, so it's like, who, right. are we, who are we counting out? You know, and Boaz is big enough to listen to her, to learn from her. <laughs> I mean, he's amazing and he sacrifices for her it's not he's not the guy who gets the girl he's joining her efforts on naomi's behalf to rescue the family yep so it's you know when that when i heard that it was over for me and people can quibble about this verse or that verse but we have the vision at creation that God gives us before the fall, where he's calling all of us to give all we have. And he's saying, don't count anybody out. You don't know where I'm doing big things. You know, it's not, it's not always the big shots. <laughs> right. Would you mind talking a little bit about that vision that you see at the very beginning, because I've also heard people point back to the opening stories in Genesis and say things like, well, Adam was created first. Eve was created to be his helper. Um, you know, Eve is responsible for the sin and kind of, they may even say from the beginning, it was supposed to be set up as a male dominated type thing. What, what vision do you see presented in the beginning? And if I might add, too, to that, I think the reason a lot of people point to that is because there's also, like, times in the New Testament where Paul will even give that as a reasoning for, for some of the thoughts he has, um, or at least what we read and how we interpret it as his thoughts for the patriarchy. He cites back to Genesis um, because, you know, Eve ate first, Eve deceived, Eve was the one deceived. Um, so, yeah. So, so the the numbering of who comes first and who comes second or third or fourth or fifth um, is patriarchy. That's primogeniture. And the Bible dismantles primogeniture. The book of Genesis shatters it because it's, you know, even with Cain and Abel, you know, it's, it's not Cain. It's Abel and then it's Seth. It's... It's um, Jacob, not Esau. It's Joseph, <laughs> you right. know, not the first 10. Right. Or, <laughs> Judah, or Judah, you know, so God isn't, God isn't following that recipe. And um, in the creation narrative, if you look at it, 
God is creating his image bearers as male and female. And he's entrusting them with the same responsibilities to rule and subdue outward. They're not supposed to rule and subdue each other. They're supposed to rule and subdue creation for the purpose of flourishing. You know, find, explore the earth's resources, cultivate, develop, utilize them. You know, everything that humanity has done with the raw material that's in the earth is part of that commission, part of that mandate. The purpose that we have as, as God's image bearers means that, that as human beings, we have the highest possible calling that you could ever have because we are created to be like God, which means the first and most important responsibility we have is to know God. And then to, to work to reflect who he is, his character and his ways, and to see the world through his eyes, the world he loves. The second chapter of Genesis focuses on the relationship, the horizontal between human beings in the creation of male and female. And, um, you know, the way we talk about it is sort of diminishing of both men and women. You know, for God to say, it is not good for the man to be alone, that he needs this person. I mean, can he feed himself? You know, is, is, you know, what is it she's, what is she created to do? It ends up being fodder for jokes instead of a very important lesson that God is teaching us about our need for one another. The word that he uses when he creates the woman is the Hebrew word azer. There are two words, actually. It's azer konegdo. Konegdo means she's his match. Like one uh, scholar in his Genesis commentary said, it's like the North Pole is to the South Pole. You know, she's, she's his match. My father taught me that the azer, and he was thinking of, marriage that the azer was a spiritual help and so that was kind of where i started uh, because <clears throat> you know not all women are able to do the kinds of things that are typically listed for women to do in marriage but when you look at the genesis narrative it doesn't talk about marriage till the very end of the chapter <clears throat> when i was single and I would look at that text and I would think, well, it's not talking to me if it's about marriage, but it's the creation of the female. So it has to do with little girls and elderly women. It has to do with wives and mothers, it has to do with all of us. Right. The word azer, when scholars study it, they do an inventory and it, <clears throat> it appears 21 times in the Old Testament as a noun. It's used twice in Genesis for the woman. Three times it's used for nations that Israel turns to for military aid when they're under assault. So <clears throat> another nation has come against them. They're being overpowered. Send your armies. The remaining 16 times it's used for God as the helper of his people. <clears throat> 
Well, I went and looked up all those words. And every time the word Azer appears, it's, there's military language in the, in the context. Send your armies. Okay? When it's used for God, he's our shield and defense. He's better than chariots and horses. He stands sentry watch over his people. Go back to the Garden of Eden. We think of paradise. But there's an enemy getting ready to attack. Well, you know, what do you call that? I mean, I say Eden was a war zone. God commanded the man to guard the garden. The same language is used for the angel guarding the garden when they're evicted with the sword. And they're going to rule and subdue. So even before the fall, they're going to encounter resistance to their efforts. And the, and the verb form of this word is even more compelling, but, you know, that it's a military term. The Azer is a warrior. There are battles to be engaged. And so she brings her strength, <clears throat> her wisdom, her full self to engage the battles. And, and what could be more plain than for God to say, this is what the man needs. And there's, we're not talking about a defective man. He's just named the animals. It's, that's the beginning of science. So, you know, he's a masterpiece. So, you know, what God is doing here, and I have to tell you, this word azer is changing the lives of a lot of women and even little girls, you know, who realize that there are serious issues going on in this world and that our brothers need us. They need us to be strong for them. They need our encouragement. They need our they need us to be strong in the Lord, which is what Paul calls us to be, you know, put on the full armor of God. He's not just talking to men. He's summoning all of us to engage in the battle against the enemy, which is not flesh and blood. But we're engaged in a battle against one another. And that's how, that's how far, far, far we've fallen from what God created us to do. And the interesting thing about this word azer is that their inventory was off because the word azer appears in the Old Testament in men's names, Eliezer and Abi Azer. And even there's a man in the tribe of Judah whose name is Azer. And this is not a wimpy name. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's important. And, you know, when you think about the struggles of life. Who do you want next to you in that battle? Do you want somebody who's going to need you to defend and protect her? Or do you want somebody who's going to engage with you? Right. Who's right. going to call you right. to be strong? Who's going to be there in the battle that you're not going to be alone? So, you know, and it should be the same thing in the church. A, a lot of what you're, you've done so far I'm sure for our listeners and definitely for myself has shed a lot of new light onto familiar Bible passages. And I would love to know what sorts of questions can both men and women ask when we read the scripture to make sure we're not bringing our own modern assumptions or our own view of social hierarchies into the text. 
but start to read the text without our male biases? What sorts of things can we start to do? Well, I think patriarchy is an important hermeneutical tool. When we study the Bible, we need to we need to acquaint ourselves with that culture and um, and the damage it does to everybody. I mean, even if you're at the top of the pyramid, you are not safe. <laughs> and everybody yep. sooner or later topples, you know, either their old age and health problems or somebody, you know, displaces them. But it's, you know, it's, and, and it's, when we think that we're called to be over other people, we're missing we're missing what God created us to be and do. I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot is male, you know, male power and privilege. We hear about this all the time. You find in the biblical story, some of these biblical stories, like Boaz is a man of enormous power and privilege. I mean, he could have done anything to Ruth and nobody would have believed her. He uses his power and privilege to empower her. Changes the whole story. He doesn't use it to make sure he's in charge or that he's the man. He he uses it sacrificially, but he uses it. You know, when you see him in the, the city gate, in the legal setting, and how he is driving through Ruth's initiative so she can get what she's proposed for the sake of the family. Nobody's opposing him. I mean, he's very powerful, but it's going to cost him. That's what the nearer relative said. It will ruin me if I do this. It was going to mean taking from his own estate and investing in Elimelech, Naomi's husband her dead husband, in his estate. And if Ruth gives birth to a baby boy, that baby boy will inherit all of that. And his sons, Boaz's sons, will inherit less. So it was, but, you know, you, you can't shed your male power and privilege. And God doesn't call you to be weak, but he calls all of us to use the gifts and powers and privileges that he entrusts to us for the good of others, for the sake yep. of his kingdom. So I love the way, what you're calling your podcast, because I, it, it, it makes the point that we have more to learn. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That, that we haven't arrived that when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and we settled for something that's sort of a kinder, gentler version of the way the world does things, that we haven't gotten there. I mean, I feel like when you open the Bible to know the God who created you, you're, you're looking at infinity. You know, what, what do we know so far? It's not very much. <laughs> It's really not. And to think that, you know, we've got it nailed down and this is the way you do things, even though people are saying, you know, this is hurting us or, you know, it, I mean, what does it do to the church when we don't, when we don't want everybody to bring all their gifts 
and to invest themselves in what God is doing. And then we send them out, you know, to go into the job or go into the community or go into the, you know, volunteer somewhere, be in the family on a front line for the kingdom. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's really diminishing our potential when we think what God is doing rests on the shoulders of a few. Yeah. Yeah. I have, um, I, 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 first of all, sorry, I want to thank you for sharing all that. Cause that's, it's just so powerful to hear that perspective. I think we need more, um, just more people talking about that. And, um, I kind of have a long intro to my question. I just want to set up a little bit of background. Um, but I've experienced as somebody that has worked at churches and just knows a lot of people that work at churches, especially I'm a worship leader um, by trade. And so in the even in the area of worship, um, I've experienced uh, females be put down because they're not able to lead an entire service of worship on their own without males on stage or something like that, or they can't do certain aspects of the ministry because they're females. And it's just never really sat sat right with me, especially like you're bringing up, like I can point over and over and over again to scriptures that indicate that what Jesus came to do and what the point of the gospel is, is to expand rather than restrict and is to include rather than exclude. And over and over, you see examples of God working through females. You see the Bible highlighting women in genealogies of Jesus, which is something that's countercultural at the time. You see the gospel writers showing that it was women who saw the resurrected Christ for the first time, which was countercultural at the time. Um, I can just name thing after thing. You see Paul uh, listing females as, uh, listing women as like apostles and priestesses and leaders in the early church. In fact, I believe it was uh, a woman who was the person that carried the letter of the Romans to the Roman church to have that kind of confidence in a woman for Paul. But yet sometimes when we can, you know, talk to somebody that, um, has a very strong belief on maybe the other side of whatever debate that is. They just point to one or two or three scriptures that just say, well, but in black and white, it says right here, a woman should not have authority over a man. And it just kind of like ends the conversation. And so I guess the question is, if we're trying to ask better questions, if we're trying to have better conversations, if we're trying to expand the gospel and instead of restrict and we're trying to love everyone like if we're trying to do all these things um what can we be what can we be doing that will um aid the the work of of trying to open the door for women leadership or um just for women to not feel like they're lesser and two how do we have better conversations with people that may be on a different side of the issue that can Bring help. Try and bring some unity to this whole this whole thing. You know, when I when I study Genesis one and two, what I come away from there is a is a very strong picture 
of God calling his sons and daughters to serve him together. And for me, it's not, oh, wouldn't it be nice? But it's a kingdom strategy. So that in the fall, the disruption of that, where instead of them ruling outward over creation together, you have the man now is going to rule over the woman because he's the stronger one, typically. That the enemy, that was brilliant what the enemy did. Because with a single blow, he cuts us off from our creator and divides us from mm. one another. And there's mystery to this, and it's not just about marriage. I mean, I've seen conservative churches where the men value the wisdom of women and they engage them in the decisions that are being made. They benefit from their ministries. My, my father was very conservative when it you know, came to you know, who would be the pastor and who would be the men on the elder board. But there was a, there was a time in his ministry um, when he, when he was going, it was rough. And there was an elderly woman who had been a missionary for a number of years. She was in her eighties and she was, she was, you know, retired and she was widowed and she was in our church. She saw what he was going through. And he said, she knew the ways of God. And she got under the load with him. And he said, she pastored the pastor. And so I think this is a very organic thing that we have, we have a bond as believers that we can strengthen and minister to one another. And it isn't just about the church service. It's about that we're all scattering into the community during the week. And that God is at work through his people, that we need to encourage each other in what we're doing in our jobs and in our families and, you know, in our neighborhoods, that it's, you know, that we need each other, that we're not in this alone. So I, you know, I think there's, there's a way, you know, I mean, even, even the majority of egalitarian churches are pastored by men. And the interesting thing, it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes um, I get phone calls from women who are in egalitarian churches who are ordained as pastors, and the problem still exists because it's sort of like, well, we've got a woman now, and so we've handled that. <laughs> I like, it's, yeah, it's like token. It, it's not that we change how we operate, mm. that we're interdependent, that we that we need that little child that just showed up in church that loves Jesus. And, you know, we need that elderly person and that we we need that man who who's, you know, a plumber or whatever, that he he's got spiritual gifts that we need. And, you know, the the metaphor of the body ought to teach us something. I mean, my throat chokes up here. I'm thinking, you know, that affects everything. <laughs> you know, it's just one little part of me. But, you know, you want a healthy body. You want 
a fully functioning body. Everybody who walks in the church should feel like they're strategic to the church's mission. And, um, you know, if one of them's hurting, you know, then that matters to all of us. And that may be a place in the body of Christ where God's doing really deep things, you know, not a place where the church is falling apart, but where there's something important going on. And, um, yeah, I, so I just think to bear in mind that what Jesus came to do is to restore something we've never seen. Mm. You know, we never got to see unfallen image bearer living. It falls apart right in the next chapter. And I always call that the missing chapter, that there's a chapter missing in the Bible where we never got to see men and women, how they could really serve God together. And, um, you know, we never, we never got to see it. We see it in Jesus. We see it in what he does. But it's like we're, we're feeling our way through this. And, and we work at it at a disadvantage as Western Americans because we're so far removed from the culture of the Bible that we don't understand what somebody in that world would tell us if, if we bothered to ask them. So, yeah, so I just, I think the questions, the, the better questions to ask are going to take us into new territory and they're going to make us uncomfortable and they're going to show us things that we never thought about before. I mean, when I, when I heard the book of Ruth taught with this m- new research that's being done, I was shattered you know, I look back on my whole life, and I wasn't a teenager when I heard that. I was in, you know, 40-ish, and I had to rethink my whole life. And and I have a lot of regrets of, of squandered opportunities and situations where, you know, I'm a woman and I shouldn't. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, before we finish up, I'd love to just ask you one more question, if that's okay. Because uh, it's been something that's been especially relevant in my world. Uh, I'm a pastor in the Houston area. So the Houston Chronicle just released this massive report on lots of abuses that have taken place in the Southern Baptist Convention over the past few decades And also we have all the stories coming out in the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. And it seems like within the church, women have experienced a lot of abuse at the hands of men. And I've heard you say recently, especially as you've recently just done some work on the Book of Ruth, something along the lines of you think the character of Boaz is is the the male response to the Me Too movement. And I'm just curious if you could speak to why so much of that abuse happens in the church and what we do about it. How how do we respond? Well, thank you for bringing that up. Um, You know, and and I would say it's worse than the report indicates because typically those who have been abused don't come forward. 
and you know to do it is to relive their situation and also they get reabused by how they're treated um, i think you know church leadership needs to be educated about the problem they need to get help um, you know a pastor can't possibly be equipped to deal with everything they need to be smart enough to go to the authorities you know these are criminal activities that we're looking at and there is no statute of limitations in the church um you know somebody who's who's done these kinds of things you, you know is is not somebody who should be in positions of trust with with um other people who are vulnerable you know it's a story of power you know that abuse is about power and um as i say power power is a gift mm. and it can be abused or it can be used in beautiful ways and you know i look at the book of ruth and i call it the me too story that didn't happen because she comes to him in the middle of the night at the threshing floor where you know typically they've been drinking you know it's not a safe place nobody's looking except boaz knows somebody's looking and that changes how he behaves and he's not he's concerned about her safety and her reputation he's concerned about the reputation and the rights of the nearer relative he's very other centered and he uses his power and privilege to make sure that she's not harmed that her reputation is protected that the nearer kinsman redeemer can claim his rights if he wants to and that naomi is helped you know so it's it's amazing what he does and you know the bible is full of me too stories that we sort of skirt around and don't talk about hagar yep. is a me too story yep. esther is a me too story the wives of jacob are me too stories you know the women who are listed in Jesus' genealogy are me too stories. You know, Bathsheba is a me too story, is an abuse of power. And we don't talk about it. We demonize the women, or we just we just don't talk about it. And um, you know, the Bible is is makes very strong statements about what's going on. And gives us a much higher calling, the safest place in the world for any human being should be in the midst of the people of God. Amen. And it's not. So something is really, really wrong. And the fact that these perpetrators are not only defended, but their careers are preserved at the risk of other people and, and, you know, the fact that we are, as Protestants, are so divided, we've never seen the cumulative, cumulative impact of what is happening. And finally, that is starting to come out. But it's everywhere. If you are looking out at a congregation, one in four women in the church has been sexually abused. 
maybe not by leadership in the church, but maybe by a relative or a boyfriend or, you know, and we have this purity culture that we teach that the most important thing for a girl is to remain pure, that that's what makes her valuable. And then you have all these women who for no fault of their own have lost that. You know, how is it that we value people in the church? You know, what is the criteria for saying you're, you're, this is why, you know, the questions I was asking as a woman is the reason she has value is because she bears God's image. And the reason that what happened to her was more egregious than we can even imagine is because she bears God's image. And, you know, we don't, we don't think like this. And that's why I think your questions are driving you into uncharted territory. But that's where we all need to go. Because we don't understand yet what it is that Jesus has come to do in us and among us. So the Me Too, Church Too thing is a huge, huge, huge blight on the, on the church. Um, and... You know, the, the response to it has been horrific. It has been utterly horrific. And um, yeah, thank you for, for raising that question because it's, it's something, you know, there are people who, you know, as soon as something like that comes to the attention of church leadership, they need to contact the authorities. They need to bring counselors in. Um, you know, you're dealing with PTSD at a, at a profoundly deep level. Um, and, you know, the, the gospel is redemptive. There's hope for everybody, but you, you've got to protect the flock <laughs> and, um, and protect the perpetrators from themselves. And, um, yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal, but there, are, you know, there are great resources and it's, it's a, it's a gift that this has come up and that the, that the evangelical church is being exposed because it's been there all along. It's been there all along. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to share that with us. I, I feel like we, we have so many more questions we would love to ask you, but we have, we, uh, we want to respect your time. So where, where can people find more of your work? So I have a blog and it's just, it's my name, carolyncustisjames.com. It's not Curtis, it's Custis, carolyncustisjames.com. I've written a bunch of books. Um, I've written two books on the book of Ruth, the gospel of Ruth and finding God in the margins. Um, I've written a book that explores, um, really puts in one volume what I've, what I've learned so far about God's calling on his daughters, which is called Half the Church. I've done the same thing for men, a book called Maelstrom, which, um, you know, men are asking the same questions. Whatever it means to be a man is, is something that is very fragile in today's world. It's something you can lose or miss or have taken away from you. Um, but God's calling on his sons is indestructible. And we need to, we, now more than ever, that conversation needs to take place. So, you know, my books are all out there. Um, I hope you'll 
let your listeners know about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us. Uh, It really was our pleasure. The privilege. Well, that was our conversation with Carolyn Custis James, and it was such a eye-opening and important conversation, and we are so grateful uh, that she was on our show to help us think through what are some better questions we can be asking and uh, how we can have better conversations um, when it comes to how do we relate together as men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, in a way that is honoring to both genders in a way that is honoring to just being human beings and members of the human race. And uh, so we want to, again, thank you for watching and for listening. And you can check out more of the Better Questions podcast by subscribing to our YouTube channel and uh, by checking us out on social media. Uh, Drop us a comment, like, share, and uh, check us out on Patreon if you are so inclined to consider supporting Uh, Even a dollar a month goes a long way towards helping our show be what it is. So thank you so much.